Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. I'm Brittany Lombos. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And all four of us are sitting in a room together in a closed space. What? Uh, no masks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm inches away from James right now. Because we're at, yeah, we're having to share a mic. Yeah, we went from like zero to a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is exciting. We're gonna talk about movies the whole episode anyway, even though this should probably be a change in plans, but what, to talk about movies? Yeah. We could talk about something else for once. What else is there in life? I mean, uh, what, that we're meeting in person? Yeah, we could do that for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, actually like, kind of cool to have people in the house again. And right. I don't know. Beautiful home. Oh, thank oh. you. Y'all can't see it. Thank but... you. It's our house, by the way. <laughs> yeah, th- I think this is the first time Brittany has been to our new apartment because we haven't had anybody here. It has been a uh, cold, lonely cave. Um, full of- <laughs> hey! <laughs> no, no. Um, we're just very excited to have people in the Yeah, house. it's nice to have everybody back. To be fair, um, this is identical to your last place right. in layout. <laughs> it's literally like next door. Yes. Uh, it is Easiest almost- move ever. It was literally two it's doors down. Very yeah. comfortable transition. Right. Almost exactly the same model of house. The same layout and rooms. Um, yeah, there's basically no difference. <laughs> Well, have y'all been watching movies in between moving and renovating and hiding from other people's maskless faces? Yes. <laughs> yeah, lot, lots of movies. Well, one movie that I watched a couple days ago that I liked way more than I thought it would was Becky. It's a Kevin James playing a skinhead. <laughs> it's basically him and his like neo-Nazi friends that are like stalking this family in the woods. And it's like a very gory kind of straightforward thriller so it's like not a comedy not at all no and he plays a monster has he ever done something that wasn't a comedy like that i don't think so and i really liked it and the gore was like top notch and uh i don't know uh, the girl becky she's like a 13 year old girl and she instead of like outwitting these skinheads she just is straight up like murdering them in the goriest fashion and like it was like pretty badass, and I don't think I think the movie got really bad reviews. I don't know, I don't know why, but um, I dug it. We a don't lot. trust all those other reviews, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was like some good violent trash. Ooh. I think I think y'all would dig it's it. Kind of like yeah. a lowbrow, the green room where Patrick Stewart played a Nazi. To- yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's just, but it's like a thirteen-year-old girl that's like learns to like get into her inner violent self and just commits like heinous murders and uh but she's doing it also in 13 year old ways like she's stabbing guys with colored pencils right like she has like a a shank that she's made from a ruler and she like stabs a guy in the chest so it's like it's like day glow violence oh now you have my attention yeah (laughs) she's not with that instead of kevin james that's like usually a mood killer (laughs) what i don't know like he was fine in the movie but she was definitely the main attraction and just like i don't know i like seeing a young character like that do like horrific acts of violence. So that was, that was very entertaining. And uh, the only other movie recently that stuck out, and I know y'all did 
already did an episode on this was Citizen Ruth. Oh. Oh my. <laughs> wow. A lot of traffic on BMville. Which is like a political satire about abortion starring Laura Dern is this like paint huffing just hor- she's not a good person no but she's like in the middle of this these like kind of polar opposite yet equally fanatical fanatical yeah you know, on the other sides of the abortion issue and I don't know I thought it was like extremely funny I know you you've seen it already. What what did you think about it, Brandon? We did a movie of the month discussion on it a few years ago, and yeah, like the satire of her being um, completely politically neutral and like self interested, and like <laughs> she just other wants people, money. yeah, money and to get high, and the money's only so she can get high. Um, <laughs> that is kind of fun, like just as a satirical object, like people trying to repurpose her like neutrality for their own political gain. Um, but really what stuck out to me was I was looking at Laura Dern's IMDb after that. And there's really not a lot of movies where she's like the actual lead of the film, like first build main character, like very few and far between, which was kind of shocking. Yeah. So like, if you're a Laura Dern fan and you haven't seen that movie, like she is so good at it. Fearless, disgusting, like hateable character, but also just awesome to watch yeah Yeah. like her the moments where she's having a tantrum or she's just there's this um scene in the end of the movie um where she's being kind of bartered between these two groups they're both trying to you know influence her with money to make the political decision that will benefit them and she's just like screaming and like why can't i ever do what i want and i've just her rage in the movie is so um, authentic and interesting. I just haven't seen a character played that way in a long time. I really loved her. She reminded me of Jerry Blank a little bit from Strangers with Candy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She's just like more yeah. of an animal than a person at right. some points in the movie. Yeah, uh, totally. Which is great. And, and you also have a great cameo by Burt Reynolds as this like preacher with this like sex oh toy God. boy. Yeah. That, that was a very strange. I felt very uneasy during the scenes where he's like massaging mm-hmm. his body and uh, I, I really thought it was like very funny, and I also thought it worked as a political satire. Like it had something interesting to say as well. So yeah, I, re- I really dug it. What What about you, Brittany? The big movie that like I can think of most vividly um, is the Mortal Kombat movie. That- <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I liked it. It was. It felt weird. As in, it starts. To feel a lot like a movie made for kids, kind of like how Transformers was when it came out, where it's like, eh, it kind of felt like a little like PG, almost PG-13, but then there were these really gross, gory parts. Yeah, the blood is plentiful. <laughs> it's all CG blood, but there's a lot of it. Oh, it's sick. Like, someone like literally gets sawed in half. Jax's arms just get ripped off. It's not enough that someone's belly is slid open, it's you watch individual organs fall out of it after that happens like it's very detailed dude that's how i felt like i went to a buddy's house and we actually played the new mortal Kombat game and i was shocked at (laughs) like i remember growing up playing it and the finishers were like oh you cut someone's head off or they get burned alive but in the new game it's insane it's like always something ridiculous happens and then it goes another step so it sounds like the movie maybe goes there yeah i didn't know there was like a new video game um that went that far but yeah that's kind of what the movie felt like it 
how can I put this? It's not that it's boring. It's, it's a just, little boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's so cheesy because as these characters from the video game might like, introduce themselves, like it's supposed to be this big moment and this big build up where it's like, go find Sonya Blade and like the camera will zoom in on their face while they say it and I'm like, okay, cool. And then they'll be like, it's Kano. And then Kano's there and it's just kind of like, okay, cool, whatever. Like, let's keep on going. And then there's all this build up for the Mortal Kombat match that like just does not happen. Yeah, that's the next movie. So you have to wait. So that was a little disappointing because like I assumed they were going to actually have like the Mortal Kombat match that would determine whether or not the Outer World would um, take over Earth. So. Which is why the original is so good. Uh, I love the Literally, first one. They just show up and they fight. And they fight. And there was really none of that. Most of it was around um, the main character, Cole, who is like a descendant of Scorpion. It's all about him trying to figure out like what his Mortal Kombat thing is. <laughs> like a superpower in like yeah. a MCU movie. Yeah. And it's, and it's not that cool no. when it mm-hmm. happens. I had, like, oh, no. a, I had a bunch like... A few coworkers get into it. They had all like seen the movie and they were debating about the origins of, I guess, this character you're talking about, but like the mythology of Scorpion and Sub-Zero and oh, in the comics, it's this Uh, way. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what y'all are talking about. I just want to see. How could you possibly care? (laughs) How could you care? I just want to see fatalities and I want to see some badass fight scenes. I mean, it was pretty. The fight scenes are good. It's just it's built up towards nothing. Maybe the sequel will be really cool. I'm yeah. expecting that. But the way that they kind of lead into the sequel is there's hint that they're going to find Johnny Cage. In my mind, like the lamest character. <laughs> like, I don't really care. Well, he had that Man. dick punch move, which was pretty cool <laughs> yes. in the original game. Yeah, yeah it was good. I mean, I, I feel like I'm hating on it, but I actually had fun watching it. I just hate that, like, since Marvel made, like, a 20-something movie universe that every fucking property has to be, like... Why do they have to fall into that shit? Just jump right into it. But they got it right the first time. It's like, (laughs) literally, it's a movie based on a video game. Just give me the video game and movie format. It's like Bloodsport. Like, Like, you can just have the movie be the tournament. Or, like, everyone's favorite movie, Monster Brawl, you know? Uh, (laughs) Some people's favorite movie. Brandon, I have to tell you, when I think about Mortal Kombat, sometimes, like, images from Monster Brawl creep into my head instead. And then I'm like, wait, no, that's not Mortal Kombat. So it it is infected me. Totally. Swamp Gut would be a great Mortal Kombat character. Yes. Well, now that, like, Mortal Kombat is moving into, like, being a gore fest, like, Swamp Gut just getting his gut ripped out and all this, like, swamp sludge pouring out of it. Because, you know, he doesn't have blood. (laughs) Moral of the story, Monster Brawl, best movie ever. (laughs) Moving on. I don't agree with that moral, but... So, one... Film. I didn't. I haven't seen. It. I didn't see it recently. It was a couple of weeks ago, but I'm still thinking about it. This movie, Clock Watchers, from the '90s. It is. It stars Tony Collette, and she is a temp in this like credit card company. Um, and there are these three other temps that work there. Um, and they're part. I mean, obviously not. You know, these are the actors: Parker Posey, Lisa Kudrow, and then there's one other girl. And they are kind of like living in this suite 
spot of having this job that nobody in the company really cares about. Um, but they're all in these like transitory stages in their life. They're, they're not really where they want to be, um, but they form this kind of um, group of temps just kind of fucking around in the office. And then a new assistant comes in and things start, um, someone starts stealing things from everybody in the company. And then the, the company starts cracking down on the temps and their, their relationships are fractured and the atmosphere of the company totally changes. And I love this movie because there have been all of these little jobs that I've had in my life that, you know, it's like not what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's not where I want to be. But for some reason, the people that I'm with and the culture of the place that I'm in make it like a great opportunity. And then suddenly it's it's gone and you have to find a way to move on and like figure out where you need to put your life next. But I think it like totally captures the banality of office life perfectly in your like mid twenties. So anyway, I just love that movie. There's this really great interview with um, John Early and Tony Collette on the A24 podcast when um, Hereditary came out. Um, And John Early did that interview mostly because he wanted to gush about clock watchers Ah! the whole time. And it was like so hard to watch at the time, like mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Now it's available. I'm very excited to watch it. Yeah. It's like high on my watch list right now. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, Parker Posey, she just like, she's a firecracker yes. in that movie, dude. Well, I love her character. And I also realized that I've had this idea of like what I want to, what I want to look like, like what clothes I want to wear. Like, and I saw Parker Posey in this movie and I thought, oh, she is who I want to be. Like, I just want to be Parker Posey. She pulls off everything that (laughs) she attempts. Yeah. I still want to be Party Girl, but uh, maybe this will usurp (laughs) that. It is very, her vibe is very similar to the character in Party Girl. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm going to watch that soon. Yay, do it. Um, I have three new movies. I can go through them pretty quickly. Uh, One I'm bringing up mostly to cover something I should have said last episode. When we were, I was kind of like slagging on modern CG animation when we were talking about Toy Story. I'd forgotten that there was a computer animated movie recently that I really liked called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh. <laughs> Did y'all see that? No, uh, no. I've been meaning to see that. I mean, it came I've out like two things. years ago. It's it's really like exciting and like innovative in computer animation, yeah. like what you can do with it. Um, in the same studio, um, Sony's like animation wing... Also helmed by uh, Lord and Miller, who do like a lot of joke scripts uh, for different studios. Um, they just put on a new movie called um, The Mitchells versus the Machines on Netflix. And I watched that last night. And it's just as, it's not as good as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. Like that is like the like example of like CG animation does not have to be boring and like just orbs like right. floating around. It's got this like old school comic book look. It's very vibrant and like neon. Uh, this new movie also does that. The Mitchells versus the Machines. It's about this like teenager who's about to leave her home to go to film school, and her and her dad just don't see eye to eye. He's very like traditional and doesn't like technology. And she's a filmmaker who just makes movies on her smartphone and laptop. So like she's like all into the internet and stuff. So the movie's meeting me more than halfway. It's about like evil internet stuff. Like uh, <laughs> Eric Andre plays this like tech bro who invents this new smartphone that like takes over the planet and like sends all the machines in the world to kill all the people. The movie's kind of balanced though. It's like technology's not all bad. Uh, The way that she connects with other weirdos outside of her household makes it like a positive thing too. 
But I just want to throw that out there as like an example. I think that like not all CG animation is bland and I was maybe overstepping my bounds a little bit. <laughs> uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines does bring back some of that Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse stuff and kind of reminded me that like it can be exciting to watch. <laughs> I don't have to be a total grump. No, I remember that was a big part of our discussion about Toy Story 3. Because I liked and, the movie otherwise. It was just the, the look of it that kind of bothered me. Yeah, and I don't know. I do get your point, but no, that that sounds pretty cool. I saw it on Netflix the other day and I kind of passed it up, but I'll check it out. It is a little long. It's like almost two hours, which for a kid's movie is like a little patience trying. But I don't know. It's definitely worth a look. It's very exciting to watch. I also got Psycho Goreman. Um, in from the library which i've been excited to see all year and did not love it as much as i wanted to but if i was 10 years old this would be like my favorite movie um it's basically like r-rated power rangers this like little girl finds an amulet that controls the space alien emperor that kills people like is like a mass murderer um and she's a little sadist and makes him like do things to her bidding and there's this intergalactic council of other space creatures that try to kill him while he's like under this little girl's control it sounds awesome me describing it it's got tons of practical effects and like rubber monster suits and basically just is a gory version of power rangers which like sounds really cool yeah the jokes just don't land like oh it kind of reminds me of like wolf cop or like zombievers or something like that like it knows that it's funny quote unquote or like deadpool i would also uh, associate it with that it's like very meta and like commenting on its own funniness in a way that just kind of ruins that's a the vibe annoying. yeah but the last one i also got from the library it, it was 20 dollars to rent and like psycho gorman i've been waiting to watch it all year uh and the library came through with a dvd copy so save me some money um i think this will be britney's favorite movie of the year i'm just calling my shot now wow uh it's called barb and star go to vista del mar oh my god <laughs> yeah i I haven't seen it because it's been a twenty dollar rental, but I'm glad to know the library's got it. It's one of those things like Minari, where like you put in your request and it's like you are number forty seven out of seventy two right. in line to watch this movie. So I had to wait a few weeks. Oh, but. I just think like what caught my attention is that they're riding like a giant shrimp. The poster is very Lisa Frank psychedelia, right. and the movie is like that too. Like it's got a very Floridian mm-hmm. psychedelic, like eye searing look to it. But what I love about it is it's just a very old-fashioned form of comedy. And I'm calling it old-fashioned because it's like what we grew up with. Mm-hmm. It's a type of movie like Romeo and Michelle, Night at the Roxbury, Dude, Where's My Car? Just like two complete idiots that are like out of sync with the rest of the world and just like very mundane and these very absurd over-the-top plotting going around them with like this like sci-fi james bond espionage kind of thing and they're just sort of like drifting through it like finding their bliss they call it getting a um a soul douche when they're in florida (laughs) um and it's uh kristen wig and her writing partner from bridesmaids doing a midwestern accent and going on a floridian vacation that's like increasingly absurd the, the further they go down the rabbit hole would love to watch it again with friends. Kind of weird to watch it with just me and Cece on the couch like on a Friday <laughs> night. But um, yeah, I, I really want you to see it and to talk to you about it once you get to okay, it. Okay, yeah. Well, today we are going to talk about the greatest film of all time, question mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock's classic Vertigo. Oh. And then several movies that have like copied its exact format um, and sort of played with Hitchcock's toys. 
I don't know. It should be interesting. We'll see if it is the greatest film of all time. We'll be the judge of that. We are the judges. Of <laughs> yes. That, so you'll find out soon. Screw that. Like sight and sound. Right. Top 100. Mm. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. Vertigo is a sense of rotation, rocking, or the world spinning experienced even when someone is perfectly still. Most of the symptoms associated with peripheral types of vertigo usually resolve on its own within a short period of time. Otherwise, you need to see a doctor to make a treatment plan. Well, speaking of the Sight and Sound Top 100, uh, one of the last times all four of us recorded together, we did like a whole series of like best movies of the year, best <laughs> movies of the decade, best movies of all time. <laughs> uh, being very ambitious. Right. Um, and we did pick movies each from the Sight and Sound Top 100. Like critics polled all across uh, the world, like what are the best movies ever made? And the top of that list was Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which I had never seen before. And I've been meaning to see for a while. And I thought maybe us getting back together in the same space would be a good time to revisit that oversight. Is this a first time I watch for anyone else or is it just me? First time for me too. Okay. So we're about half and half here. What I find kind of funny about the sight and sound thing is like it overtook Citizen Kane for the first time. I think every four or five years they redo the sight and sound poll. Um, and Citizen Kane lost its like number one position. Mm -hmm. And then recently, someone dug up an old negative review of Citizen Kane and uploaded it to Rotten Tomatoes. And that one slipped down from the greatest movie of all time and Paddington 2 took over. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so Citizen Kane has suffered two blows recently. Oh, no. Oh, or I mean, It does feel like, I don't know, knocking Citizen Kane off of its pedestal and going with this film, it feels like a step in the direction of modernity like this film is a more modern film to me than citizen kane i wholeheartedly disagree with that all right yeah <laughs> i love citizen kane i think it's a great film when i watched citizen kane i was like okay this is one of the greatest films of all time let's see if that's true like i was like entering it skeptical mm -hmm. and i feel like vertigo i had the same skepticism um and with citizen kane i was like kind of wowed by it i was like okay this filmmaking is very vibrant and I understand that accolade. Watching this, I was like, this is a pretty good Hitchcock movie. And he makes great films. So this is a great film. But best movie of all time? I don't know. I, I totally disagree <laughs> oh, with boy. you. Well, this is going to be a very interesting <laughs> episode. Yeah. I, like, the, the only time and the last time I watched Citizen Kane, I was in high school. And I just remember being really bored. Interesting. But also, I was an idiot. So I was probably like, this is an old movie. And, like, there's no, like, psycho bitties in it. Because that's the only right. movies I liked at that point in my life. So I, I would love to watch it again and see what you see, Brandon. It's not a genre film. Like, it is, like, a character study of a megalomaniac. <laughs> Whereas, like, this is a... Especially for Hitchcock, it's not only like he makes, you know, thrillers and mystery films, and this is certainly one of those. Yeah. But what really struck me about Vertigo and like the most effusive praise I'll give it is that it is him going as close to supernatural as I ever remember seeing Hitchcock go. Yeah. Um, it pulls back away from that, but like for most of the runtime, it feels like it's a ghost story. And the closest I could think of that he's done that before is Rebecca. And even that mm -hmm. one's a little more tame. In comparison to this, like this is him doing like full supernatural unhinged from reality genre filmmaking. I, I mean, I think also it's him doing, you know, he's kind of was known for those taut sort of thrillers like Rear Window 
that are like very perfect and tight. And this one is like more kind of this art house, weird um, ghost story. But I don't know. Like to me, this is probably the best Hitchcock up there, probably top two or three. And I've seen most Hitchcock. So, you know, I don't know. I would push back against it just kind of being Mm -hmm. like, oh, Hitchcock makes great movies and this is a great movie. And and there's nothing special about it. I think this is a special movie. It's good. It's whenever I got to the end of it, I'm like, God, that was so stupid. But I love it because it was so stupid. What was stupid about the ending? Okay. Well, okay. (laughs) We'll get into it. All right. Just in broad strokes, this movie is about um, Jimmy Stewart plays this cop who um, we see early in the film chasing a criminal across these rooftops. Um, he does not apprehend the suspects and is hanging from a building. He like misses a jump um, and he gets vertigo uh, looking at the ground beneath him. Um, and Hitchcock does this really gorgeous pole focus effect where mm-hmm. like the ground like gets further and further away, like kind of a hallway in every horror movie from a director who's ever seen this before does that same pole focus effect. So now he has a fear of heights, mostly tied to his guilt of this other cop dying um, in that chase. He like watches his like coworker die. Getting over that, recovering, he is hired by an old friend to tail this like rich man's wife. Not for the normal reasons, not for like, I think she's cheating or I think she's doing something nefarious. It's like, I think she is possessed by her ancestor. Um, <laughs> He starts tailing this woman as a job, um, as a, like a favor. And the further he studies her odd behavior, he's like, maybe she is possessed by a ghost. Like he starts to buy into that supernatural mystery. She like goes to stare at the painting of her old self and like goes to these old places that she would never have a recollection of. She at, goes to her own grave. She goes to her own grave. Yeah. And she's like blacking out during this time. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't even yeah. have a memory yeah. of doing it. And in that um, sort of like hypnotized state, she has multiple suicide attempts. Um, and eventually he jumps in and like saves her life. Uh, she jumps into the, the water in the bay in San Francisco, um, fishes her out, brings her home, strips her naked so her clothes can dry. And then from there, he starts to try to talk her out of her madness and this like a way that we don't really deal with mental illness anymore. Like being like, you have to know that this is delusional. Here's a logical reason why what you're thinking is insane. Mm -hmm. That's not ever going to (laughs) work. And eventually she does successfully kill herself. And from there, this is about halfway, maybe two thirds in the movie. I'm like, I honestly have no idea where this is going anymore. Like once she dies, it's like that first act of psycho where like the person you assume is the main character dies. You're like, well, what's next after that? Right. And I do feel like that last third of the movie, for me at least, is what takes it from like, that's a very good Hitchcock to that's a fucking masterpiece. Right. Yeah. Like, because you really don't know your first time watching it. And then when the themes start really c- coming up at the end, you're like, oh my God, like now I know what this movie is really about. It, I was like thunderstruck first time I saw it. I didn't know what it was really about until it was actually like laid out for me and I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like I wasn't picking up anything. Yeah, he will explain things to you in case you didn't catch it. Thank God because I need it or else I'm like stuck in Reddit trying to have somebody (laughs) explain it for me. (laughs) From there it becomes a little more grounded in reality. He does see her doppelganger on the streets and um, he's like, 
how is this possible that she is still alive? I watched her kill herself jumping out of this tower. And he tracks down the doppelganger, has her confess more or less um, for what's really going on. And it turns out she was hired to um, snooker this guy into like losing his mind and thinking um, that this woman is possessed by a ghost. Uh, so basically framing the suicide when it was really a murder, her husband murders her. I, I'm getting a little loose with this because it's like very plot heavy. What's interesting to me in that back half and what I really like about this and I, something I've seen echoed in so many other films is the idea of turning a woman into a fetish object. Like he mm-hmm. tells her how to dress, tells her how to act and tries to recreate this version of her that um, he sees in his head. He like wants to make this like doppelganger into what he fell in love with, which we saw in Phoenix, which is one of the first movies we ever talked about in this mm-hmm. podcast. We recently talked about in Dogs Don't Wear Pants, where he like hires the um, dominatrix and tries to get her to look like his wife. Um, in other films, like I'm just, it's a theme. It's like, oh, I see how influential this mm-hmm. this movie is. Yeah, it's yeah. like the Pygmalion story. Yes, too. It, yeah, it feels more like a movie about like obsession more than anything to me, which will lead to something later we'll talk about. But yeah, like just watching him spiral into this like monster of a human being was well, it, so good. And it also subverts your expectations of Jimmy Stewart. You right. know, when I think of Jimmy Stewart, I think of It's a Wonderful Life. And in the beginning, he's like your everyday Jimmy Stewart. By the end, he's like a monster. Oh, yeah. Like, like, I hope your Draco comes back real hard, dude. <laughs> yeah. You suck. Like, fall down the stairs. But what I meant when I said it's like a more modern. Like, I see why it overtook Citizen Kane is I think Citizen Kane got all the accolades from, like, a technical aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think this film gets the accolades from a thematic aspect. And I I, I don't know. I find that more interesting. I think if you watched Citizen Kane, you'd be surprised (laughs) by, like, how fetishistic and, like, um, (laughs) maniacal it is the way that this movie is in fits. Like, this movie is very dreamlike. And then there's these, like, fits of, like... I was calling it kinky earlier, and I really mean that. Like, it's, like, fetishistic. Early on, more so in, like, the scenes with Midge where he's like, ooh, what's this underwear you have laying around in your apartment? And there's, like, adulterous kisses and, like, things that are, like, kind of 1950s, like, allowable fetishism. But towards the end of the movie, when it becomes, like, full-on erotic, where he's, like, trying to mold her into, like, what he wants to see, it's like, oh, there's that pervert Hitchcock I'm used to, you know? (laughs) I don't want to, like, say this is not a great film. I really do mean that he makes a bunch of great movies and this is one of them. Uh, I just didn't get over that hump where I was like, this is obviously his masterpiece. Nothing else can touch it. Um, I didn't really feel that. Except maybe in the dream sequence, um, the animation. Oh, yeah. That's pretty great. For me, it was that scene where he finally has molded her into the old version of herself. She comes out of the green light and the music is very sweeping and he gets a tear in his eye like yes here's the ideal version of this person i want and then it goes to shit very quickly because i don't know there's something very profound about this movie that i i think in other hitchcocks like rear window or out psycho or rope or rebecca like it, it didn't hit me in the gut emotionally in the way that this film did that's where it kind of goes over the hump for me. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like every time I watch this movie, it's just such a tragedy. Like the with this 
film and the films that we watched for this podcast, like there is the twist or the explanation behind the doppelganger of the woman. And you could just make a movie where the revelation of like what the mechanism behind the doppelganger is, is the point of the movie. And that, you know, we find out what's going on, you know, two thirds of the way through. And then at that point, she's deciding whether to leave and like leave him a note and and say, you know, this is what happened. And I, w- I wanted to make it work with you. And maybe if I was stronger, I would have. And then she decides, you know, maybe I can make him love me for who I am. And she's, you know, like, she's completely different from the doppelganger or from the wife of the wealthy man. She has brown hair, you know, she's living in this tiny apartment. She's working class. Right, exactly. And you just, there's this moment where she's trying to decide what to do. And then she rips up the letter that she wrote for him. And she's committed to trying to actually make him fall in love with her. And it's just doomed. And I think she is one of the most sympathetic women in a Hitchcock film that I've ever seen. I just loved her character and and just watching the story unfold past the like gotcha of the twist it was super satisfying. And the fact that there was, you know, like Hitchcock believed there was enough to say that he pushed it past that point. I, I hear what like what you and James are saying and I think like what you guys have in common that I don't have in common and like and Brandon is we haven't seen this multiple times and I think if I would see it more it wouldn't come off as silly mm-hmm. as it came off the first time because I'm like wait so he was like holding onto his wife's like dead body to like throw it off a roof like hoping to get <laughs> there at this point like like that I couldn't wrap my head I didn't around. experience that a little bit with the plot holes yeah, yeah, I'm like totally. the cops really didn't focus on out. the plot but like what y'all are saying is absolutely right. Like I'm seeing that now, and I, I did not think of that until y'all started kind of like talking about it at first. Because I was just like, "Wait, what? This is like so like ridiculous." Like, <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I really want to watch it again. Um, I like I said, the plot to me just seemed like silly, but in a cool way because I like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it was the style of the movie that I was like really, really blown away by. Yeah, all the fun, vivid colors. All those like shots of like the San Francisco Bridge and the Bay, the pretty like blue green. Oh, and they're in water. what is it, Ernie's restaurant oh, with that God. like it's velvety so red on the walls? And she's like, wearing an Elmer green that, dress that, that, that dress. pops off of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the the use of the color green. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a master class oh, yeah. and so like pretty. good filmmaking. I don't know what that green means really, other than like. It is a shade of green that just sort of conjures otherworldly, like, outer mm-hmm. space kind of, like, imagery. Emerald. Yeah. Yeah. It's mystical, but I don't think it, like, symbolizes anything yeah. concrete to me, which is probably fine, because the movie's not... I don't think it has anything concrete to say, other than the, like, dangers of nostalgia, mm-hmm. and, like, how obsessing over the past can be a dangerous thing to do to yourself. Yeah. And when, when I was saying earlier that I don't agree that this is, like, a modern film in comparison to Citizen Kane is because I think this movie is obsessed with the past. I think that's part of the reason why it's so beloved is because it is nostalgic for a previous time. But, but you're saying it's the danger of nostalgia and the danger... Like, I feel like the reason why maybe this ranks so high is, like, I feel like critics love movies that kind of talk about movies... Or like the art form of movies and this is saying something about 
creating your identity of being the ideal self or the ideal partner for someone based on like a Hollywood image. And that also goes into like Hitchcock apparently was obsessed with blondes. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like this meta commentary (laughs) from him where like he's sort of pointing the finger at himself saying like, yeah, I have these like idealistic versions of women. And when you hold women to these like lofty sort of out there standards, then you do damage essentially. I don't know. Yeah. That tight um, bun she's wearing with that gray suit. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh, you're just, it's Kim Novak in the movie. It's like, Oh, you're just Tippy Hendren from the birds. Like it's the exact same image. Yeah. And that, but apparently that is what he was attracted to. Well, he's a fetishist. Yeah. Which I love about him. But to to comment on the past and like that like obsessive like self destruction in his own nature, he has to dwell there. Like that makes the movie part of the past as well and makes it sort of traditional because that's where it's dwelling. Even if he is self critiquing by doing it. So like it's modern in acknowledging that, but it's also traditional in indulging in it for at least two thirds of its runtime. Well, I would say like modern in that it goes deep into psychology whereas like when i watch a lot of older films they even if they're psychological dramas they don't really go like deep deep into those themes and like this movie does in an interesting way that feels modern to me no one's gonna argue it's a bad movie (laughs) (laughs) like at this point we're splitting hairs about how great it is i'll also say like in these kinds of movies where there, you know, there's some mystery, you're going through the movie not understanding exactly what's going on and, and pieces are kind of falling into place, but the mystery itself is intoxicating. I feel like 90% of the time, the ending is just not really satisfying. It's like it was all of the thought went into the mystery and the anticipation and the buildup and there's just no ending that can um, match that anticipation. But this movie just keeps me going through each of its sections like i think the um mystery with carmela is super engaging and then um you know there's the scene in the spanish villa and that's really exciting and then she dies and he's alone and he runs into the doppelganger and that i mean just i mean and that's just hitchcock being a great director like there is never a moment where i'm disappointed or i'm or I'm not engaged and it and like that just leads me through to the very last scene. It's just like totally masterful. I still don't know if that makes it the best movie of all time. <laughs> what a hard like standard to live up to. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what I love about that ending too is like my favorite thing about this movie is him I mean, I like the fetishism stuff a lot, obviously, because mm-hmm. I talk about that all the time. But I love the idea of him going supernatural for once, mm-hmm, right. even though he doesn't commit to that. But he keeps faking you out where it's like, well, maybe there is a ghost in right. this movie. Maybe maybe this one well, spirit with the nun at the very end. It's it, almost like the angel of death has shown her face. And it's one more tease of the super- supernatural. Yeah. And it's like you could make an argument that it, I mean... I don't think that literally there is a ghost, but he is obviously possessed by like the kind of spirit that they're talking about in the beginning. So it's not like it's not otherworldly at all. It's just kind of like more psychologically supernatural. It's like in the the very first 
or in the first scene where Jimmy Stewart is talking to his old friend and his old friend is saying like, ah, do you believe that spirits can, uh, from the past, can <laughs> right. enter and people possess? In the... Right. And he's I like, just, because no, I'd seen the movie before, I thought, oh, yeah, that's totally what it... he's like possessed by the ghost of this fantasy woman. And that pushes her or that pushes him to kill the actual woman. Yeah. That's why I feel like critics love this because it's like filmmaking masterclass 101. Like we have themes. We have motifs. <laughs> Look at all we the themes. We have color. Like. The use of color, that I feel like that's why critics have gravitated towards this film. It's like, you know, if you were taking a course on how to make a great film, okay, your colors represent this, and your themes are this, and your character arc is this, and it does all of that, like, throughout the movie, where you watch it multiple times, and you're like, oh my god, like, like you were saying that line from the beginning, that's, like, great filmmaking it's telling you at the beginning this is the character's flaw and that is ultimately what brings him down Mm -hmm. at the end like it's just like filmmaking 101 yeah and the three ascending scenes so the first scene where he's chasing he's a police officer he's chasing the guy he's going to apprehend someone and then leads to the death of his partner and then the second he's running after her going up the chapel trying to um, save her, trying to bring her down. And then the second he's, you know, dragging her up to her death, basically, you know, and I just, even the kind of symmetry in those three instances and, and showing how he is kind of turning into this obsessed, like degraded monster of a person is, ah, it's just, I just love it. It's super satisfying. But greatest movie of all time? I don't know. Yeah, it's don't tough. Know. Like you made- it's hard. You know, everyone's going to have a personal favorite. So like, yeah, no, I think so much of like your favorite movie is just an emotional gut reaction. You know what I mean? I can't even pick my favorite John Waters film. Like I have like five (laughs) contenders, right? We are going to talk about three different movies that have riffed on this Mm -hmm. same premise and like done their own thing with it. Um, The thing that I want to point out before we move on is that none of those derivative works include Midge. What an oversight. Right. Midge is oh. so cool. We Midge haven't even is, talked about Midge, Midge ourselves. Yeah. But Midge is like, I don't know. Her character was so crucial to that story where he has a great thing right in front of him. She's right? real. She's real. She's smart. <laughs> she's cool as fuck. She's right. cool. She's awesome. She didn't deserve him. So I was kind of happy that nothing ever happened with her. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. God, yeah. you're so above this. Side she spent 20 hours painting a meme just to like right. rattle him. <laughs> well, that, yeah. But it's like... I don't know. That's such a stupid man thing to do. It's like you've got a good thing right, right in front of your face and you're over here fantasizing right. about something that's not even real. Yeah. Like that is some real like shit that men do. Justice for Midge. Midge rules. We love Midge. <laughs> I'd marry Midge in a minute. <laughs> Why is, it, why, 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 why is Hitchcock the master? Why You've been referred to, Brian, as the new Hitchcock and so on. Well, because Hitchcock, I think, uh, pioneered a whole type of film grammar. He, learned, he taught us how to express things as clearly, visually, I think, as they can be expressed. It's like good grammar. You either speak well or you speak badly. You either write clearly or you don't. And he does it. And when he's expressing an idea or a, mm-hmm. you know, a whole cinematic sequence, he, does, he puts the camera in exactly the right position. He has exactly the right shots. 
mm. you know, and everybody else is sort of muddle-headed and bird-brained, basically, and in relationship to him. Yeah. Why hasn't everyone learned from him, then? Because he's a genius. You can't duplicate it, you just have Well, you it. can get close, but he is a genius. So. Yeah. so there are plenty of directors who are Hitchcock obsessives and called, like, Hitchcock ripoffs in the world. That's because he's a highly influential director who invented a lot of filmmaking techniques and that makes sense that Vertigo would then be one of the most influential films of all time, just sort of following that thought train. One of the bigger places you'll see Hitchcock influence is in Giallo, like uh, Jolly films from Italy, like crime pictures from the 60s and 70s. Very Hitchcock obsessed. They're crime pictures that are very overstylized and pick up a lot of his visual cues and his like themes and it's kind of weird to like pick out just one from there that would like be like oh this is the jalo version of hitchcock but re reading around i feel like the one we picked does like summarize that lucio fulci is if dario argento and mario bava are like the two like main jalo directors fulci is like number three in that slot he's like right there up with the two of them um and just like argento and bava he is very hitchcock obsessed and he made his own feature-length homage to Vertigo in his very first Jawa picture. So this is a young director coming off a couple like low-budget comedies, um, making his like stylistic splash as like an auteur um, in this film called Perversion Story from 1969, also known as One on Top of the Other. Like Vertigo, it is about a man who is erotically obsessed with a version of a woman that doesn't really exist. He ignores his wife who he finds to be kind of a hypochondriac nag and like does not have any interest in her whatsoever while he's like off doing these adulterous things and like being this like hotshot doctor that like does a lot of publicity stunts more than he actually does doctoring um trying to promote his hospital practice with his brother his hypochondriac wife dies and he feels very free by this he's like thank <laughs> god she is dead i can go have sex with my mistress full time now except that she reemerges as this high-class stripper in downtown San Francisco. So even just the San Francisco-ness of it immediately calls back to Vertigo. And then also the fact that his wife has this doppelganger um, in this high-class stripper. The stripper immediately thinks that he's interested in having a threesome with him and his mistress. Um, so the movie plays with a lot of like lesbianism maybes that never really come to anything. Uh, but for the most part, he's just following this woman around having sex with her and thinking about his dead wife during the act. Um, <laughs> it's all very sleazy. It's easily the sleaziest movie we'll talk about today. And honestly, it might be my, I don't want to say it's better than Vertigo. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but it's definitely my favorite of the derivatives. Like It's better than Vertigo. Whoa. What? Y'all are out your fucking mind. I love the energy. Ooh. That's, I love the gumption. That's strong. That's yeah. strong. We're so going to get into it's, it right now. It's, like, it's just like a it's sexy vertigo leopard print. Like, it's not sexy. and They just have tits on screen for half the movie. That doesn't make it sexy. The, I don't know. It's not I mean, actually sexy. But the costumes, like the leather glove bras and like the motorcycle show on stage. That wasn't sexy to me. Okay. I mean... <laughs> They're all novelty <laughs> strip acts. Like, they're yeah. all themed strip mm -hmm. routines. And just, like, her attitude is so awesome. I agree. Throughout the whole yeah. movie, how she has this just, like, I don't know, this very powerful, like, personality. And her confidence is so awesome to watch. And I don't know. Like, I loved her. 
maybe that's why I like this movie more, just because like there was a stronger female character that I vibe with. It's also like a straightforward genre film, like Vertigo yeah. is living in this sort of liminal, like dreamlike space and like sort of flirting, like, is it supernatural? Is it not? I don't know. This is like straightforward genre filmmaking. You know what to expect out of a Jalo, which if I'm gonna put it in any words, it's low energy, like very like slow moving, <laughs> high concept, which this movie has, and like over the top visual style. And I think this movie has that out the wazoo, yes. which which I find really funny about it because Hitchcock, what you think about with him is very controlled and like thoughtful about every camera setup and every camera movement. It's like very like masterful. Fulci is not that. He is absolutely <laughs> fucking unhinged. And especially in this film, oh like God. he does these wild handheld shots They're that horrible. are like sloppy and all over the place. Yes, it's bad filmmaking. No, it's great. It's chaotic. Dude, wait, hold on. There is a scene in here where the detective is talking to her through a water cooler. Oh, and I'm cinema. like, no, that is. I was like, why does this shot exist? This is bad. The editing, the editing, like, I didn't know where I was half the time in the, like, space of the scene. Like, the way it was cut. Did you even like those scenes where you were in the lab and there were, like, five different shots? Oh, that's great. <laughs> that was like, no, that was fine. Yeah. What about my favorite, that Russ Meyer shot of Under the Bed where they're having sex? Oh, my God. And it's shot through a glass sheet. Right. Um, and the, um, the satin, like, pink like, sheets yeah. are, like, filtering the color mm-hmm. that they're having sex on top of. Yeah, and they're oh. having, like, hardcore <laughs> sex and then, like, he keeps seeing his wife's dead face. God. <laughs> that's awesome. That was, that was fine, but, like, if we're talking about how Vertigo is, like, a masterclass in filmmaking. This is like a masterclass in like experimental filmmaking gone wrong. Where, not gone wrong. Yes, <laughs> where it's like these weird shots and editing that don't make any sense. I'm going to shoot the detective through a water cooler for no reason. For its own sake. Not yeah. for no reason, like because it looks cool. It doesn't look good. It didn't look good. That's the part where I disagree. And the, the thing is like, okay, that is what's perverse about it is like Hitchcock knows what he's doing at all times mm-hmm. and Fulci's just throwing every idea he has at the wall. <laughs> I, I, I admire I, that. I love that. Level. What Where they meet on the same page is they're both total perverts. And I think this yeah. movie mm. is equally perverted as Vertigo is. It's just like not as controlled. So I don't the think it's as like... like makes it more pervy. No, I don't think yeah. it's like as like actually kinky. It's really just like... Literally every other scene, it's like there's tits involved, and we're gonna focus on the tit. And like that's not sexy to me. It's like gratuitous. I I thought it was more funny in a way. Like for example, whenever he goes to her cool apartment, which I'm obsessed with, like you literally go downstairs into a bedroom, and she wears this like whole like lingerie like outfit, but immediately she's like something something more comfortable. And then she immediately takes the robe off, and then she's, like, in her bra and underwear, and she's like, what's up? <laughs> and then, then that flies off, too. And I'm like, you haven't even worn that thing for, like, a whole minute. <laughs> but, like, little things like that I, like, thought were so, so funny. And I think it really represents, like, his attitude while he was directing this, where it's like, oh, yeah, just like, take all that off, whatever. Like, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, which, to me, like, I feel like I relate more to that mentality where i'm like oh, that looks weird let's try this like oh no nah, that didn't work I mean, it's it's low budget high concept filmmaking 
Yeah. And yeah. It's like you're watching the process in a way. But at least let it be clear, like, what city I'm in at a given time. There's a part in the beginning where I'm like... I thought we were in Reno. Wait, we're in Reno, but <laughs> there's it's snowing. So, wait, we're in Vegas, but now we're back in San Francisco. There was a section of the film there where I was, like, very unclear. Do we expect Just, Italians to have, like firm grasps on American geography. Basic, but basic <laughs> geography, I'm driving from San Francisco to Vegas, but I'm in the snow-covered mountains. What, what happened? I don't know. It's, so was... it's, it's kind of like parsing out the plot of Vertigo. We're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He threw a dead body off the roof. Like, it's more about the vibes, man, than like what actually happens in the movie. I, and then like yeah. all the stupid stuff happening too, I loved. Like, I just loved how, like, how dumb the it was. it was dumb. I'll agree with you there. It was dumb in like a fun way where I'm like, well, because I, I watched Vertigo before this and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to understand this, this time. And then like when I started to like realize what was happening, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. This is so silly. And Dude, I loved it. Jolly are never solid on plot. Like they're right. all like. That, that's fine. But this yeah. movie was long. It was like was it? two. Yeah, it was like yeah. two hours long. Why? It's just so pretty. No, and it was grow. I, I, <laughs> I so did well, not. Well, like it was beautiful, thing. and I just like I, I felt like all the frustrations too. Like whenever the cops went in and like tore up her apartment, I was screaming. I was like, "You assholes! This is a beautiful place." Like, <laughs> we didn't feel anything during Vertigo. No. <laughs> Well, okay, I, 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 I want to say... Person. No, you're not a good... Well, so <laughs> when I was, like, comparing these films as... Okay, so Vertigo is our kind of the foundation, and then we're looking yeah. at all these other films. Like, I was focusing on the... I think the one of the most important things in Vertigo is his relationship with um, Madeline. Like, that is the cornerstone of the film. He's obsessed with her, she dies, and then it, it kind of... His obsession continues on with um, the doppelganger and, you know, we get to the end of the movie. And then in um, Perversion Story, I just, he doesn't have a relationship with his wife, you know. I mean, he doesn't, like, he he, he doesn't like her he at all. Like and so it was an interest. I mean, the thing that kind of, that was lacking for me was that dynamic just because that dynamic is so interesting to me and even in obsession you know that dynamic still exists like that's a core of the film um and and that part kind of like left me unmoored but but ultimately i don't think that like that was as important in the Jalo film i think it, it was more about the substance and you know like you were saying like the vibes of the story but i was missing out on like that kind of foundation he yeah. does have a much stronger connection with his mistress than he does with his wife in the film. Yeah. Undoubtedly. I will say the idea of cheating on your mistress with your wife is like a really fun, perverted idea. Right. I think the movie was like more excited about that yeah. than it was about the actual relationship. Yeah. But the idea that he's like having sex with, sex with this like hot to trot stripper that's like beyond his wildest erotic fantasies. And the whole time he's just thinking about his dead wife right. like while he's doing it. There's something there. Yeah. Like, I don't know that it's as, like, strong as, like, that, you know, supernatural attraction at the core of Vertigo. But, like, there's something really weird about the sexual, like, psychology of that. Yeah. But, like, he was almost coming to terms with, like, did I really love her? And I just thought I didn't because I wasn't sexually attracted to her at that time. And I think, like, the way I looked at it is he was sort of realizing, like, 
wow, I really did love my dead wife. <laughs> you know, and he, it's like, and then the more he becomes into like the sh- blonde stripper version of his wife, he's starting to realize that more and more. It's like a Madonna horror complex that like all men have. It's like, I didn't think of her sexually at all, but oh my right. God, she's actually kind of hot. Right. Uh, now even, that she has like moto decals. <laughs> yeah. uh, she doesn't dress like Emily Dickinson anymore. That's yeah. where I like, I can't help but love this movie where it gets into the San Francisco strip routines. I'm like, this is just a Russ Meyer movie. This is <laughs> Mondo Topless or um, Beyond the Value of the Dolls. Like those quick shots of different like body parts. Um, sort of like abstracted into like basically their parts of like cars almost not even yeah. women anymore um, <laughs> it's so ugly and perverted but I don't know yeah he's an ugly perverted man and he he gets his like comeuppance uh, by the end and I mean I this might be, be a stereotype but this did kind of feel like the Italian version of that story where like everybody's uh, fucking each other and so like Italian. you know in there is this like kind of obsession with monogamy and with like the one woman and there are, you know, so many films about a man whose wife dies and he can't get over it. And this film is like the relationships are like way more nebulous. And then in the end, can I like spoil yeah, go it? For it yeah. <laughs> so he's like going to go to the gas chamber and then his brother is in prison with him and he's like, Oh, it was me who set this up all along. And I was like, oh. your wife was my mistress. So it's just like everybody, like relationships don't okay. mean anything. Can we talk <laughs> about this ending? Yeah. This <laughs> ending was complete dog shit. And here's why it's like, instead of showing us, showing us what happened, you know, you have this tension. Oh my God, he's in the gas chamber. Like last minute, is the governor going to call? Like, is there going to be new evidence? They don't show any of that. They show a reporter talking about it and then <laughs> and show a typewriter, a typewriter <laughs> typing out what the reporter says. What a bullshit ending. I love it. No. Stop. And you here's why. It. You don't love it. You it's love because it, it is another, going back to like the limitations of low budget filmmaking, they basically had to scam their way into San Quentin, which will not allow people to film their like gas chamber um set up it was like one of the first movies to ever get a camera in that room and show like what a real gas chamber is yeah like, cool well, that's death. cool it's very chilling i don't know yeah and, like why is that chilling because people are fucking murdered by the state no in no that no, room. no i know that but i'm saying like that particular you already have the camera in there like you wanted them to show him like getting gas and then getting pulled out of the last I, like minute last minute like, oh my god they're I ended up and oh last you night don't even they pulled see him, out. him. Like he doesn't even appear. No. They just cut to like this reporter earlier today, this happened, and then you see the typewriter. What a cop out of an ending. I don't know that they would have been allowed to do more than that, is what I'm saying. Like they had yeah. to Well you got that. They far. want the access of like filming more. in an actual gas chamber and they had to like work around the limitations of what they were allowed to do yeah. in that space. So basically they were like, You have ten minutes to right. do this. Or okay. You could have right. done more with that ten minutes. And I felt like that ending was so flat. It's like, oh, it just ends with a reporter telling us about this dramatic moment yeah. that happened. Like, what a cop out. You know what part what of the ending, ending that I thought like blew my mind was her outfit change at the airport. That like coat yeah. that went from being like a red and white print to being like solid white and she like throws off her mm. blonde wig to reveal her brown hair and pops out her like contact oh. lenses. Right. I was like, oh my god, yes, yes, yes. I was like, oh, <laughs> That's my mom. Yeah, it reminded me of like when Violet Chachki 
like did that room. Yes. The plaid. The gingham. Yeah. Yes. yes. That yeah. was it. Plaid. Created. Or no, that was the OG version of it. And right. I was, I was there for it. I love her. Yeah. Love her. I love her as, you know, her stripper self and as Jane. Something I want to mention now that you brought up like the ending his brother that was having an affair with his wife is supposed to be his younger brother. What? Yeah. Right? Uh, weird casting. <laughs> they said that. They're like, oh, like, it's his younger brother that he had to practice with. And I'm like, that looks like it could have been his dad. Right. Right? The, the lead is so distractingly handsome and the brother is such a non-looker. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, Jane, for that? Yeah. Like, right. you did all that for that? Well, then the, the guy that comes in, um, you know, the guys that, that was stalker. obsessed with her, the stalker, and then kills him both. Like, Who knew the stalker would kind of be karma at the end of the day? I guess so, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Right, well, <laughs> I don't know. I like, liked it. I didn't like it. I don't know. Like, Jalo, it's, like, hard to really nitpick any of the plot stuff for me because it's, like, I've been trained to just not care. Right. Like, it's all about getting the images. And, but, um, uh, again, my thing wasn't the plot. It was the... Like the technical aspects were pretty glaring to me. It's wild. Like... It's erratic. <laughs> it's someone just like giving it a shot, and I, I love that. <laughs> I love that. It's oh, human. Okay. It's tactile. Like yeah, out of every movie that we've seen, like this is the one that I want to buy. I want to own it, and I want to watch it. Like when I'm having a bad day. I'm on Britney's page. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I liked it more than Vertigo, but I liked those two the most out of the four films we watched for sure. Uh, the next one, if Jalo is like one of the bigger points where like Hitchcock is a like obvious influence on the entire genre, um, we have to talk about Brian De Palma, who is like the biggest Hitchcock devotee of all time. <laughs> totally. And his movie Obsession from 1976 is like the closest he gets to straight riffing on Vertigo. Like there are little bits and pieces of Vertigo you could see in like all of his work. I'm thinking of um, Body Double that we watched recently mm-hmm. where, like, there's that scene in the tunnel where he's, like, tailing a woman for, like, an hour, which is very vertigo. But they kiss in the tunnel and there's that 360 um, spin shot around the two of them. It's like, oh, that's straight out of the Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. But his movie Obsession is pretty much a remake of Vertigo <laughs> reset in New Orleans and Florence, Italy, um, instead of in San Francisco. I will say for the first hour of this film, I was finally seeing the Hitchcock ripoff artist, the people's like the worst detractors of Hitch- of uh, De Palma, like dismiss him as like, oh, he's just doing Hitchcock again. It's not that interesting. Like for the first hour of this film, I was like, oh, I kind of see it. Like this is just him like ripping off Hitchcock and yeah. not doing anything interesting with it. And then this movie for its final like 30 minutes just goes off the rail like <laughs> to Palma sleaze. I'm like, yeah, there he is again. There's my madman asshole. Uh, 80s sleazeball. I guess I felt like kind of the same but a little different where I actually really liked the buildup. And then when it came to like the explanation of everything, you know, it sort of lost me a little bit. And then the final scene, I think, is one of oh. his greatest final scenes like because it's so fucked up (laughs) like like a man that's in kind of in love with his i guess daughter when that happened i was like we really cannot not have an episode that doesn't involve incest i will say (laughs) yeah like here it is again my incest radar went off really early in this film like i knew the twist when it was coming yes 
Yes. Well, because they I had, did not. Right. Because they had the wife and the daughter. Like, I, the setup was the same. But I'm like, why are you including the daughter in this? There has to be a reason. And then it ultimately ended up being that. Look, way. the reason that it didn't really click for me is that they put this time gap to where the movie it starts like, what, 1959? Mm-hmm. And then it's like 16 years later. And I'm like, he still fucking looks the same. He doesn't even have gray hair. And also nothing else, like the cars don't even change on the set. That is a good thing, in my opinion, because the movie is set in New Orleans and this city does not fucking change. And that's why people like coming <laughs> uh, here. Oh, okay. And that especially a lot of it's shot in the French Quarter and then juxtaposed with Florence, Italy. So like it has that old European look mm-hmm. to it. And that's what is covetable about the city. We have not allowed ourselves to become a Houston or an Atlanta where it's just yes. this big sprawling metairie where everything looks exactly the same. Yeah. And we have an old world charm here and you can set a movie here 20, 30, 50 years apart and not really have to change much. Mm-hmm. Like, Good point. That's what was kind of surprising was like, but like not Jackson even the vehicles Squares. and the fashion, like it, just because like none of that changed at all. Like it took me a sec. I'm like, wait, like, could that be his wife? Because he didn't age. We, we've been called the city that time forgot before, which I think is a brilliant move to set a Vertigo remake here because it is about nostalgia. Yeah. And like, I think one of the first scenes in Vertigo is like when he's being hired to tail that rich man's wife, the guy's like, oh, San Francisco isn't what it used to be 20 years ago. Yeah. It used to be this mm-hmm. like, better city. It's like, that is New Orleans all the time. No matter what time you ask somebody like well new orleans used to be really cool but it's not as cool as it used to be i was pretty taken aback like the scenes in jackson square like you know we were there last weekend and it kind of looks the same yeah it's so bizarre that's the only part of like new orleans that hasn't changed like of course like gentrification is like full-fledged in every other part of the city except for that but but even like uptown like you know the guy lives uptown and that kind of looks like what uptown still yeah, looks like. like i don't know i mean yeah the, yeah, the most Charles expensive homes mansions yeah yeah they're changed. the same they've been for a hundred years yeah so down the street right and yeah. you get to those other blocks right but john lithgow <laughs> yeah. did grow a mustache so. yeah well and that was the thing with me when i saw john lithgow in the beginning i'm like well that's the villain <laughs> he's a villain i mean <laughs> how is he in this movie and not the villain there's no way I love, though, how, like, all these movies that, like, take place in New Orleans, it almost seems like everything prior, like, you know, 1990 and prior to that, like, everyone talks that they're from Savannah, Georgia. Oh, John Lithgow's mm. Nolan's accent is horrible in this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm like, oh, you, like, the accents are horrible, but I always find that charming. Yeah, like, it's I funny. Yeah. It's like bad Cajun accents are like always like the most hilarious. Who should talk to yeah. that? I'll talk to the Italian man. Yeah. <laughs> the really big like tip off to me is like the main actor in this film said you all instead of y'all. I'm like, come on. Oh, no. You get one thing right. <laughs> Do a like... little work. <laughs> oh, but it, I don't know. I think they just, I wish they would have done something different with the main character and like aged him a little or made him look different or make him look like he looked so old to me. The whole time. Like, John Lithgow looked younger than him. He looked super old. He's the least interesting part of this film. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I kind of, like, that's how I felt for most of the film. I was like, this main actor is, like, not engaging, really. He's just kind of, like, wooden and just a blank canvas. But he did, like, towards the end, he started to emote a little more. And then I feel like he actually started to act 
in that last scene where he's like basically I'll do it right this time and get the real money. Um, (laughs) So the pattern I've seen Vertigo, well, not so much Vertigo, but maybe more so with like perversion story in this movie is the men are just kind of like whatever like perversion story in this like the the male characters are just kind of like blah the whole time they, i don't think jimmy stewart is the most interesting part of vertigo either right like, right all right yeah that too like yeah. he's he isn't um and also it's these really older guys macking on like yeah the younger women and that's just like i noticed that like after seeing obsession i'm like oh this feels gross <laughs> and then i'm like well perversion story didn't feel gross but he was supposed to be way older um, yeah, I just think Vertigo is like, Jimmy Stewart was probably in his 40s yeah. and he was, you oh, know, opposite of an actress who was in her 20s. Yeah, and he just looked even older. I think because he had the cane, the Vertigo oh, walk yeah, too, yeah. that aged him a little bit. Yeah, just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> um, but that, uh, of course, that wasn't the ickiest part of um, obsession for sure. <laughs> so... Very quick plot synopsis because there's no reason to do all three of these stories like in full over and over again because they're all very similar. Yeah. But this man's wife dies in the 1950s based on an error he made while she was held hostage by these gangsters. Uh, The film is split between the 50s and the 70s and he never leaves the 50s mentally. Like his wife and his daughter like basically going off the literally off the rails off the um. St. Claude Bridge um, into the water of the Mississippi River and dying in front of his eyes. That feels like a throwback to like noir era, like crime pictures in the early part of the film. And it's shot in this like very nostalgic Vaseline covered like hazy lens. And then we jump to the seventies, like contemporary. Um, We split our time between New Orleans and Venice, not Venice, Florence, where he um, goes to this church where he first met his wife and he finds her exact doppelganger restoring a painting. And they lay on the metaphor very thick in yeah. that scene. Where <laughs> it's like, oh, the old painting under this one is like showing through the cracks. And like the past right. is emerging through I the love present. That shit. They had to make a decision to, to restore the original or paint over as before. Yeah. Right. Um, and we should mention here that um, the woman who's playing his old wife and his new fiance is... Jean-Viev Bajold, who was also in Dead Ringers, which we talked about in a recent podcast, mm-hmm. and also in our current movie, The Month, Trouble in Mind. Mm-hmm. She's just like... She's a stellar star. Queen of the moment, yes. for sure. <laughs> um, he brings her back to New Orleans, um, which does not look very different from Florence, Italy. Like, they're kind of the same city, um, which is another, like, nostalgic, like, old world, new world kind of thing. There's a lot of old South, new South discussion in the film as well. People try to pathologize him and saying he's living in the past, just marrying this new woman in his life because she looks like his wife. And he um, is constantly undercut by his business partner, played by John Lithgow, who um, is the obvious villain from frame one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it just turns into this um, vertigo riff the further you get into it. But by the last 15 minutes, it goes full to Palma Slee's um, co-written by Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. Who wrote my favorite New Orleans set film of all time, which is Cat People? Cat People! Super what? incestuous. <laughs> yeah. And another remake of a classic. And yeah, the last 15 minutes are pure, pure De Palma, even though it ends on like a Hitchcock 360 kiss, the same way that Body Double it mimics the Vertigo one. It's like he is doing Hitchcock, but you cannot deny that he is making it his own thing. 
my only complaint is that usually you get the new thing very early. We're like, here you have to wait for it. It's like he's doing Hitchcock the whole movie in the last 15 minutes. It's like, oh, now we're updating it with some modern sleaze. So that's the only thing that holds it back for me, but I think it's pretty good to Palma. It was so funny though at the end where like they're doing those flashbacks where she's back in, you know, mm-hmm. 1959 and she's screaming while her mom's like tied Mommy. up, but it's her like, wait, now. as an adult. I know, that's when I was like, wait, what? <laughs> oh no. Oh no, 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 yeah, no. That, that like, 360 hits like, it's like he's going through the right. stages of guilt. Kind of like, I don't know how to feel like I'm I'm happy, but right. in a way I'm now I'm sad. I'm yeah. a little turned she, on. I'm she a- like <laughs> jumps in his arms like, oh daddy, you you care about me. You saved me. You brought the real money. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And he's daddy, like, daddy, daddy. Uh, look on his face. Is like, yeah. Uh, I didn't make the, the connection of that the, they both have the 360 shots and they are both like totally different tonally like he is like he was gonna kill her and it's his daughter and he also like wanted to fuck her and then yeah it's just like a total like disintegration of that moment and paul schrader in his script made it very clear that they consummated that marriage um right but the studio made them edit that out um it's not that it doesn't happen but it's turn into a dream sequence which mimics the dream sequence in vertigo that's like separate from reality mm-hmm. where there's this kind of like wayne's world like <laughs> filter that's like over yeah. the thing like it yeah. looks like rain's falling and it's like oh they only had sex in his mind and not in real life which after watching so many incest movies for this podcast they always do that they're like they weren't actually related though like it's always like a taboo that people aren't willing to commit yeah yeah i i really i i actually really like this film it's um, good yeah, it's not my favorite De Palma. It's probably like middle tier De Palma, but I was very engaged in the beginning. And I feel like the only part where I wasn't was the exposition of explaining the plot and the scheme or whatever. But then at that end, that final scene where he's like lovingly embracing his daughter and he's feel feeling very conflicted about it. Like, I don't know, that like was a great ending to me so i i dug this movie a lot and comparing this movie and vertigo like this is a movie i was really excited to see where this led especially when she is brought back to new orleans and she's like kind of i mean he has a huge house and she, it kind of feels like she's a captive like it's a gated home and there's like kind of a bluebeard situation where there's this locked door and she has to find the key and it's like his wife's old room. So I, I was just like really intrigued with the potential and then I was disappointed with the, the like actual plot that John Lithgow had like kind of brought her to Italy. And it's so kind of obvious. Kept her yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, and that's the situation I was talking about earlier where it's like you're really excited to see where this is going to go and then it kind of, you know, they just didn't know what to do with it or they go with kind of the obvious choice um but i i don't know i thought there were some really like cool threads that were maybe more interesting than some of the threads in vertigo well i really did like obsession i i like vertigo the main hurdle i had with it is that i love the director so much that i already have so many works in my head that are like solid yeah that on a first time watch i'm like well it's not my favorite de palma but it's yeah. pretty it was, good it was a fun fun ride and vertigo first time watch it's like i mean I, I think it's really good but it's not my favorite hitchcock but i mean Brittany, something you said like way early in this conversation has been sticking with me it's like well i've only seen it one time yeah so maybe on repeat viewings i would like knowing where it's going i might have like a more 
yeah, I mean, nuanced connection to it. I will say watching Vertigo a couple times, it definitely like deepens every time you watch it in that like film scholarly critic sort of way, <laughs> you know, where you're like, ah, th- themes, motifs, lighting. It's, yeah. This is great filmmaking. I keep, I realize that I'm like focusing too much on like the plot as being the plot. Because I kind of feel like that with this movie too, where I'm like, is it worth doing all this crap for like <laughs> this much money? I mean, come on, it's been 18 years and y'all are planning on like right. doing this again. Like, I was just like, do people really think like this? Like, this seems like just stupid and like a waste of time. Like the crime. It's yeah. not the movie. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know why I focus on that. Yeah. No, but I, I felt the same way, actually. And the thing that I like about Vertigo versus Obsession is Vertigo is like, the crime is very convoluted and it's like yeah. crazy. But, you know, that happens. And then the rest of the movie is the aftermath of that and, you know, the the repercussions. And with Obsession, it was like, there's this convoluted kidnapping crime. And then like the whole rest of the movie is another convoluted kidnapping crime that's like building on the last one. It's just like an eight, yeah, it's like an 18 year thing. I would just like I not I have do that for 2 hours right. to get 10 bucks. Like why are they putting themselves yeah. in this hell? And I feel like John Lithgow just screwed himself over because he like wanted the money in the beginning, yeah. but then they got this land and because um, his like family died. He had this tomb on the land, and then John Lithgow couldn't use any of the land. And he's like, "Stop living in the damn okay. past." <laughs> the funny thing is, like, thinking about Fulci and like why perversion story sticks out is I don't fully have a handle on him because he is such an erratic filmmaker. <laughs> like, um, woman in a lizard skin, um, perversion story, and don't torture a duckling, and like all these other movies he's made are just like. I don't get him yet. So, like, it's still exciting every time I see a new film mm-hmm. from him. Where it's like the Palma, I know what he's doing with Hitchcock's toys. Um, so, like, this is just another example of him playing with them well. Um, mm. It's a good movie. It's just not like, I wouldn't be like, this is the De Palma you have to see. Right. Even though it's set locally, you would yeah. think I'd have a Oh, I'm going to tell everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While, like, picking, like, one Jalo film or, like, one Brian De Palma film to represent Vertigo is a little iffy because that that influence is like so widespread. It wasn't that hard to pick the third movie we're talking about, which is Guy Madden's The Green Fog from 2017. My original pitch for this episode was I just wanted to watch The Green Fog and Vertigo together and like compare the two of them. I'm glad we talked it out and like picked more movies because I did not like this very much. <laughs> really? And that is against the critical grain. I think most people, the critical response to this one was very positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we don't talk about experimental cinema very much on this podcast. Like that sort of like Stan Brackage, like just pure cinema, just like ideas and images on the screen, not really thinking about plot, just like abstraction. Guy Madden does that to an extent. Usually he has plots to his movies and there's a humor to it. The Green Fog is an experiment from 2017. It's a recent film. You can watch it free on Vimeo or on the Criterion channel right now. It is him and two other editors throwing together images from movies and TV shows shot in and around San Francisco. It includes images from Vertigo, but also a bunch of movies that are derivative from Vertigo and directly referencing it. And other movies that just happen to be set in the same locations. And it's a mixtape movie. It's like compiling a impression of Vertigo using the tropes and scenes from other films 
a little frustrating in the fact that um, all the dialogue is snipped out in these like TV shows. Like people sit down to have a conversation and it's like snipped short. You don't mm-hmm. hear people talking for like, I want to say like 90% of it every like now and that. then. It's frustrating, but it's kind of funny. Especially when like he'll interject like a NSYNC music video in the middle of the film. It's like, <laughs> yeah. this is the most dialogue I've heard in the last half hour. Uh, if anything, what I think this movie gets more about Vertigo than the other films in this group is the nostalgia for an old San Francisco in that it is made for a film festival held by the um, San Francisco Film Society every year. And it was like their 60th anniversary or something. They commissioned him to make this like art film. And it is basically a love letter to the arts, local arts commission, like being able to license all these films to be set locally and highlighting Mm. how the city plays into all these stories and how Vertigo has been the like linchpin that connects all these things. They cut out Midge they cut out the like rooftop chase for the most part at the beginning and like other like things are missing. It's sort of boiling it down um, so that it's all just the imagery and iconography of Vertigo. You get like the vague impression of it. Honestly, I thought this was interesting in parts. My favorite movie last year, like my favorite movie of 2020 was Ask Anybody, which was a mixtape movie exactly like this that told a start to end story mixing together images from different gay pornos from the 70s and 80s. And it was like the same exercise as this, but I was like totally engaged with that from start to end. And this film, I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Okay, that's that image is cool. But I didn't like really care about this in any like concrete way for most of the runtime. I don't know if y'all had a better job latching onto it than I did. I mean, to me, this movie felt like when you go to an art museum and there's that movie playing in that one room, that like you go in and you look at it for like 10 minutes and you're like cool and then you just keep looking at like other stuff so i didn't hate it but like it wasn't very memorable and i kind of just sat there and i was like cool and then it ended yeah. and i was like all right that was kind of yeah cool. it is an art gallery film i think that's yeah. fair i mean i i was surprised at how much i did feel at certain points in this like especially the climax like i think it's an hour long so, I mean, it's not like a long film. The first 40 minutes, it was kind of hit or miss. And then for me, the last 20 minutes, like it actually crescendoed and hit like a climax where, you know, like people are falling off of the roofs and like buildings are collapsing and the music was swelling. And I was like, wow, like I'm actually engaged with this. Um, so I, I don't know. I think I liked it more than... Maybe you guys did, but yeah, there are a couple of segments that I really liked. I loved the her kind of makeover transformation segment and how, you know, there are these um, scenes of women being made up by other people kind of intercut with people restoring buildings. I thought that was a cool kind of play on the underlying idea of her transformation in the film. And I thought that the last segment so the couples arguing that's great yeah and i also really liked the the comparison between the so again there are two scenes where um jimmy stewart is kind of going up the cathedral with the the woman right kim novak and 
in the first segment, like the first segment and the second segment in The Green Fog have totally different feels. Like in the first segment, I mean, it, it feels a little bit more like like there are more scenes of men chasing women. And then in the second scene, it's really men dragging women up these stairs. And there is one little like clip, especially where this man is like carrying this like Barbie doll up the stairs. And I thought that was like a great distillation of a vertigo theme. But I mean, my I can't say that my attention was grasped for the entirety of the film. Like I was in the beginning, I was like kind of finding it hard to to engage with it. And then the last I would say the last third was like great to me. Um, I also think I don't know if I would have enjoyed it if I had not seen Vertigo. Like right before it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, I don't know if I would really understand what's happening. And maybe that doesn't matter. Like, I don't think this film is for people that haven't seen Vertigo. But I think that like an actually effective mixtape movie doesn't require you to see the film beforehand to like really understand what's happening. I was thinking about that a lot with each of these movies is like how long into the runtime would it take me to recognize that this was a vertigo riff if I did not know going in. Yeah. And with obsession and with perversion story, I think I would have caught on pretty quickly. Um with this one it it kind of takes a minute, which is very odd because it is like that's the whole thing it's doing. Right. Like, there's really um, nothing else. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like I actually think it's more about like San Francisco mm-hmm. than it is about Vertigo. Like all the movies we've talked about today, like San Francisco is the setting. Well, besides, I guess, um, Obsession. Obsession splits its time between two different cities. Yeah. But like San Francisco has like a city to set a movie in, especially with the green fog. Like that's what I think it's more about. Not so much about like Vertigo. Just like the city of San Francisco and the way it's been represented in all these different films and TV shows. And I don't just more about like the city as a place to set a story. That's interesting that you say that because I'm wondering, there's something I picked up on and I might be wrong, but a lot of the more modern film clips from modern films that appeared were more towards the end, Uh right? Yeah. Like, and, like, they weren't like, really peppered through, like, the older clips were. And I don't know if that was supposed to mean something. I mean, there's, like, a nostalgia for, like, all these movies we've grown up with that were set in San Francisco. It's kind of funny because Guy Madden is Canadian. And, like, most of his movies are, like, very <laughs> Canadian-focused. Yeah. Um, like, one of his most famous films is My Winnipeg, which is, like, about that province. And it's, like, a fake documentary about the area. So, like, for him to make such a love letter to San Francisco, his interest in it does seem to be as a vertigo fan Mm -hmm. like what can i pull from these san francisco movies that recalls something i've seen in vertigo before but you know it is a commissioned piece from the san francisco film society right (laughs) they're kind of like bragging like what have we commissioned to be made here like what have we gotten the permits for Mm -hmm. that have like captured our city for the thing and Honestly, if I was more in love with San Francisco, I went there one time about two years ago. It was the last vacation I ever took before the pandemic. And it was great. I had a great 24-hour whirlwind experience there. But I think if this movie, say, were a hodgepodge version of New Orleans or something, I might have had more of a hook. Mm -hmm. Reading the Letterboxd review of this film from Evan Purchell, who directed 
um, Ask Anybody, which was the porno film that I was just talking about earlier, like he said, I could probably remake this San Francisco movie just with pornos shot around that city. <laughs> I was like, well, that's an angle. Like, that's interesting. I could watch that and like have something to hook onto. Here, I was just like, I don't know San Francisco as well as the target audience, and I don't have as much to latch onto. So that when it's not firing and not having like interesting mm. ideas that have to do with like Virgo specifically, that's when I'm like, just kind of waiting for something interesting to happen. Well, and there was like this meta angle of like, there's all these scenes of people watching the film. It's like very conscious of you as a viewer, right? Watching films set in San Francisco, and again, it was like a very interesting art piece and very thought provoking. I don't know if it was like a great film in and of itself, but you know, it, it did conjure up images and thoughts in me, which I think is like what any good like museum yeah. exhibition yeah. should do. You know? I think Brittany nailed it. Those like looping movies that like, yeah, a couple weirdos will invest the 45 minutes to an hour to like sit in and watch it full. <laughs> yeah. I have as well. And like, yeah. but most, mostly though people like, will like sort of sift in and like, okay, I'm going to go see the photographs that yeah. are like connected to this and sort of multimedia like That's curation. Not that like I, was in a museum when I watched it, but I felt like I was. Yeah, totally. And it got to the point where when I was like, okay, like that was interesting. Now what I'm focused on is picking out the movies these scenes are coming from. And I was having really fun with that. Like it was almost like a game I was playing with myself. I'm like, this is from this. And I write it down. And then at the end, all the answers come through. And I'm like, check, check. <laughs> it reminds me of how they used, like whenever you put in like a VHS tape when you were little and they would have, you know, these hodgepodge, you know, previews of movies with like happy days playing in the background. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they showed you, okay, actually, here's where all that's from. I like that. And it, it, it made it fun. It made a fun experience. I don't know. This movie's interesting. Probably my least favorite movie we talked about today. Out of all four of them, to be honest. I know James actively disliked Perversion Story. Yeah. <laughs> so that's probably at the bottom of his list. I, I mean, this is like interesting i guess intellectually like academically yeah academically it's interesting to think about it's a cool project it's uh, to call it like a great movie i mean i don't know about that we said earlier that like rewatching vertigo might unlock something about it for me and Brittany as like first time viewers that we haven't quite latched onto yet which is funny to say because we've watched three versions of Vertigo after the fact. <laughs> like, maybe I would get it by now. Um, I do wish kind of that I had time to rewatch the film um, before we had this conversation. Maybe I would have been a little more overjoyed to discuss it. I, I think it is a good Hitchcock movie, which is to say that it probably is one of the greatest films of all time because he's right. like a great director. <laughs> um, I well, felt more appreciative of Vertigo, though, even though we only watched it once. Like, as we watched these other movies, I was like, okay, like, things in Vertigo are making a little more sense now as I'm picking up on all the patterns and watching all these other films. Watching The Green Fog, I guess my question is, like, what is The Green Fog? So in the film, it's like, constantly, you know, the, the fog is entering the scene and yeah, and in Vertigo, like, there's a lot of green that happens with the color. Like, what does a green fog, like, represent? Well, and the green fog, like, green fog comes out when, okay, when Judy comes out and she is made up to look 
like that's Madeline. That's the best shot in the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's like green fog actually comes through the door. Yeah, well, and it yeah, pervades. In the, in the God Madden film, it's mm-hmm. like there's lots of shots where he adds in, right. you know, the special effects of the green fog. Which is his one in. intrusion on this film. Like, mostly yeah. it's yeah. just him collaging the stuff together, but, like, the green fog is something he actually adds to the He frame. adds to it. So what is the green fog? The image that phrase conjures for me is the Great Gatsby, where he's, like, yes! peering the over green the water, light. and he sees the yeah. green light past the fog. Yeah, like, that's exactly what I thought of. Which is another which is, nostalgia piece. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly that he's, like, yeah, yearning for this thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Who influenced who? <laughs> is Hitchcock a ripoff artist himself? Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> okay, well, you know, these are mostly great films. I, I think The Green Fog is more of a interesting side piece, but I would say Obsession, Perversion Story, and Vertigo are all, like, worth watching and worth yeah, engaging totally. with. Yeah. Uh, even if you don't like one of them or the other for being, like, derivative, it's kind of, like, fascinating as a movie fan to see, like, the most respected professional critics, like what they value in cinema, mm-hmm. um, there is something distilled here in these films. I, I, I do feel like I appreciated other movies that we didn't even talk about today. I, I referenced um, Phoenix and Dogs Don't Wear Pants in particular earlier, just because of the two that immediately came to mind. But I feel like I'll be thinking back to Vertigo the more I see like doppelganger, Pygmalion type like mm-hmm. stories in the future. Yeah, My Fair not- Lady. There's something about the doppelganger story that is so ripe for... You can take it so many different mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. It's like, maybe it's about like your lover and your ideal version of them, or it's like your own self and how your ideal version of yourself. And that, I don't know. Yeah, I think we're in a very specific subset of the doppelganger genre of like doppelganger of a woman that has died that has come it is haunting you and and i mean i think it's funny that all of the in all of these movies the doppelganger is somebody that's trying to con you basically for one reason or another it's like this woman and either the person that has come back is um you know pretending to be somebody they're not or the person that you fell in love with in the first place isn't who you thought they were like the image of the woman is never fulfilled and that idea of, like, living in the past and, like, not being able to capture what you once had. Yeah. It's kind of funny from, like, a cinema file perspective. Like, I don't want to get too philosophical and heavy here because it's kind of pretentious. But, like, <laughs> please. Okay. So, please. I want it from you, Brandon. The idea I'm latching onto here is, like, anyone who loves movies is loving something that, like, already happened. Like... Let's say a new movie comes out right now um, that was delayed from, like, COVID production stuff and, like, was supposed to come out in theaters last year. We're already loving an idea that is an echo of something that was produced two years ago and then written two years before Mm -hmm. that. But, like, by the time something gets to your brain, it's already, like, an echo of an echo. Um, And us, you know, people who are willing to look even further back in the past, we're really looking into, like, ghosts of ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this great um, book called The Ghost Image that's about, like, the philosophy of photography that i highly recommend but like that is the idea of cinema in general like you're capturing an image and a feeling and the further you get away from it Mm -hmm. all you can really interact with it as is through a lens of nostalgia Mm -hmm. so it kind of makes sense that vertigo would be like the pinnacle of cinema because it is 
explicitly about that nostalgia and like recapturing something that's like already gone yeah and like cannot be like replicated right well that's what's kind of great about the green fog is like it highlights that it's like nostalgia on top of nostalgia it's all these films that were set in the same place years ago had similar themes and we're just kind of reliving the same themes over and over and over again yeah, and what's great about Perversion Story is when she, like, rolls into the screen on her um, motorcycle and then takes off her little <laughs> panties and then she has a little face drawn on her vagina, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Right. So, same thing. Yeah. Right. You're totally. You got it. Lucio wow. Fulci is, like, plugged in. Wow. <laughs> for the art of cinema. <laughs> I don't know. I would recommend all of these movies just yeah. as, like... Someone's who's interested in movies as an art form. I don't know. Kind of embarrassing. I didn't see Vertigo until this conversation, <laughs> to be honest. I would watch all of these. If I had never watched them, I would watch all of these movies and then I would watch all of them again, except for The Green Fog. I would just watch that one time. But I, I yeah, I think all of these are like very enjoyable and there is much, much to mine from them. Uh, so next week on the show, we are going to talk about something much less prestigious than Vertigo. Um, Allie is presenting Castle Freak, which is a straight-to-VHS full moon production directed by Stuart Gordon about, you know, a freak that lives in a castle. Come on. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, check us out on Swampflix.com. If you have any movie suggestions or want to tell me how cruel I was to Vertigo by calling it <laughs> just a great film and not the greatest film of all time. <laughs> Email us at swampflicks at gmail.com. Bye, everybody. Bye! Bye.